0: Well, in May of this year, the Surgeon General issued a warning uh, to our nation uh, after signs that our nation was functionally past the COVID pandemic. um, The U.S. Surgeon General warned of another epidemic that nobody was talking about, and he issued this Surgeon General's warning of the epidemic of loneliness and isolation and some of you may have recognized this or you've experienced this in your life. And, and, uh, so many that I know have, have found this new experience with isolation that it's, that it's not so much that they're not around people, it's that they feel alone. And, and clearly, uh, in recent days, uh, social media, technology, uh, the sheltering in place that happened during, during the pandemic, uh, they've all contributed. But as it turns out, that was just pouring gas on a fire that was already sweeping across our nation. Um, Murphy, in his 80-page report, which is a fascinating read, by the way, um, it probably will put some of you to sleep, um, but it's a fascinating read because he cites all sorts of clinical research uh, that found that one in two adults, think about this, one in two adults in America battled feelings of loneliness prior to the 2020 pandemic before all of the sheltering in place, before all the things that separated us from the people that were our support structures. And while many of the people in these studies couldn't identify exactly what they were feeling, people of different socioeconomic backgrounds um, from different ge- geographical locations, different parts of the country, um, they describe this ache of isolation um, in statements like this. I-, I have to shoulder all of life's burdens by myself. If I disappear tomorrow... No one will even notice. These are actual quotes from people that were part of these studies, and and here's what Murthy found. He found in his research that over fifty, over the last fifty years, uh, beginning around the the early to mid 1970s, people have increasingly experienced feelings of being isolated, of being feeling invisible, and feeling insignificant. And this is something that's plaguing our culture to a a large degree across all generations. In fact, uh, over this same period in the the last 50 years, um, somewhat because of entrepreneurship and and, uh, new businesses, people working on their own, but the amount of time adults spend alone has increased 20%. Think about that. 20% of your awake time has has been spent, uh, an increase in 20% has been spent alone versus 50 years ago. And the most uh, alarming research is amongst the youngest generations, as as you would imagine, Uh, among millennials and Gen Z. Time spent with friends has decreased 70% just in the last 20 years. And it's no wonder, because... About 20 years ago was the dawn of social media, and all of the, the different social media apps and companies and organizations began to separate people. And a lot of people uh, attribute this to the, 20, the fact that 25% of Gen Z, which, which is uh, you know college and early 20s, um, are clinically depressed, 25%, one in four, clinically depressed, and has the highest suicide rate of any generation in history. Now, this is all sounds really, really challenging and really bad, but actually, Murthy in his report, and, and again, I'm going to give you most of it, so you probably won't even have to read it, but his, he says, this is just the tip of the iceberg. That's just sort of the individual effects, but if you look deeper at to how, how people are affected to the, to the rate and the degree that they're affected, um, uh, mental health, uh, risks, um, obviously this is, uh, we've seen an increase of anxiety and depression and stress in our culture, which, by the way, erodes people's capacity for resiliency. And they're strong predictors or, or they're strong markers for people that are, that are headed towards suicidal thoughts. There, there's not only the mental health risks, though, this was the most shocking for me. I don't know if you've ever heard this. I never knew this. This is the Surgeon General, and in his research, they discovered that there's not only that, there's physical health risks that include heart disease, up to 30% increase in heart disease and high blood pressure, 50% increase in, in dementia amongst our, uh, some of the older populations, and even diabetes has been linked to isolation, your physical health is at risk. As a matter of fact, so much so that a lack of social connection increases the risk of premature death to the levels comparable of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's, it's significant. It's important. And, and it's affecting people and individuals all across our society, but not just Individuals. In his research, he discovered that communities, societies are affected by this as well. The societal health risks, emotional, mental, and economic, uh, academic achievement is down. Career performance is poor. Healthcare expense. Did you know that there's an excess, because of social isolation amongst our seniors, there's an excess of $6.7 billion that are spent a year in our country because of isolation among seniors. It also affects economic prosperity in communities, the safety and resilience of communities when, when uh, disaster or, or some types of hazard strikes in, in a community. And it, it affects social and political stability in our communities. And the, the, the greatest evidence of this, and some of you saw this, during the pandemic, less socially connected communities across the nation, there was a study done, less socially connected communities, they recovered far slower in all aspects uh, physically, socially, and economically, the health of those communities, they, they recovered much slower. So this, is, this, is, this, this isn't just a, a political problem. This is a human problem. And, and it's, a, it's a human problem in our nation. The Surgeon General's uh, uh, conclusion, it was basically this, is that we were wired, people were wired for social connection. And that social connection significantly improves our personal health. And it's vital, it's vital for our societal health. And as one of my counselors would say, that sounds important. (laughs) When I would talk to my counselor and and she'd hear me say something that I've just sort of lived with, which we've just sort of lived with this and let it continue to drift and drift and drift. And, And I would bring it up and I would sort of say it matter of fact. And it would just sort of go by me, like maybe some of this just went by some of us. She'd say, that sounds important. And that's when I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> and so for the next weeks, next few weeks, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about it in a series called Friendology. And the whole idea of this series, Friendology, is creating a culture of life-giving relationships in our lives because it's something we all need. And the reason we're going to talk about this is because in a society, we're becoming insulated. We're going to talk about all three of these insulated and, and isolated and independent. We've reached levels of crisis and something has to be done. And if you consider yourself a Christian, I'll just say this, we know better, you know better, or at least we should know better. As a matter of fact, this is like one of the first or the original, the oldest human problems. We didn't need the Surgeon General to tell us this. In fact, this is the first problem recorded in the Bible, even before sin. Okay, I need to do a little, little bit of background for us. And I know for some of us, this'll be a little review, a little bit of context, a very little bit, because there's only a little bit that happened uh, before we, we we sort of happened on the first problem uh, in the scripture so in the beginning god created and, and if you're you're somebody who is resistant of of the creation story it's okay it's it's not a it's not a big deal to me the, the reality is is the, the, the ch- genesis chapter one is really trying to introduce us to who's behind everything not exactly how it happened so we could debate that I believe it because Jesus affirmed it but here's the thing is God was behind everything in the beginning and the creation story tells a story of chaos in the beginning. That that there was chaos that existed, and God turned chaos into order. And and we've talked a little bit about this before uh, in this, this story. And as God was creating, each day that he created, he created something, and he declared that what he created was good. In each day of creation, some of you remember the story, he created good. So it's, it's obvious that, that what, what existed before, and there was some things, that the spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and, and there's this picture of chaos that's created. And that was not good. At least it was not good for humanity before God created humanity. And so God creates, and when he creates, he makes chaos into order. That's what God does. And and after these first five days of creating, we have the first creative brainstorm session in history. So for those of you who love creative brainstorm sessions, look at what the scripture says. It says, then God said, let us, he said to himself, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. And so the question becomes, who is us? And some of you know this, There's a there's this theological concept and this theological idea that God... Is actually a Trinity, and this is this is sort of an old uh, uh, image for what for what the the Trinity looks like, and it's sort of this triune God—the Father, the Son, and the Spirit—and so the Father and the Son and the Spirit, who are all active, we know from different places in Scripture, they're different active. They're active in the creating. They're all God. They're three persons but one. This triune God, He decides to create man. And when he creates man, he he does it in a unique way. He says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And there's this phrase that has emerged uh, across time and has become very famous. In in fact, there's a very famous painting that's that's, uh, named this. And the the name of the, the painting is Imago Dei. And it's the idea that we were created... In the image of God, that mankind was created, and we were, we were created to image God. We were created to sort of be a mirror or to be a reflection of who God is in the world. And even more so than anybody else in the world, man was created to image God. And then on page two, page two of the Bible, the first problem in the short history of humanity is addressed. And it's not sin, most of us think that's the first problem. It's not the first problem. The first problem on page two, the Lord God said, it is not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. Now, in the beginning, the things that were not good were things that, that were, were chaotic. It was chaos in the beginning. And the things that were good were things that God took and he created order out of them. When he created order, he said it was good. And so he goes back and he says, look, the, 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 there's a problem here. And the problem is that man is alone alone. And it's not good for the man to be alone. And the first problem in, in human, with humanity is not sin. The first problem is isolation. And God says that it's not good. This is, this is something that, that has the proclivity or the potential to lead to chaos, and it's not good. Man was not designed to be a Lone Ranger, which I never really understood because the Lone Ranger wasn't even a Lone Ranger, he had Tonto. Like even in the story, he doesn't, he's not a lone ranger, but, but it's not good. And it's, and he says, it's not good. And, and, and this is an important distinction. It's not just the male man because he doesn't use the word ish. Ish is male. It's, he uses the word Adam, which is Adam. It, it, it's the word for man, uh, mankind, because mankind was created from Adamah, from the ground. And so mankind, it's not good for mankind, for the humans to be alone. That's, what's not good. So God acknowledges this problem that it's not good for man to be alone. And this has been proven time and time again. And you know this. Some of you have proven this in your own life. You've experienced this in your own life. You've seen this in the lives of other people. But this is fascinating. Wal, uh, Robert Waldinger, some of you have heard of this guy. He, um, he's uh, currently the steward of the longest-running study of what makes a good life. What makes It's the longest-running study on happiness in life. In fact, in in 1938, Harvard researchers embarked on a decade-long study, and it shouldn't have survived. It it was passed to four different directors, and Robert Waldringer is is the most recent. And and in his his message, in this TED Talk that's been viewed by millions and millions of people, um, he cited this study about what makes us happy in life. It's like, it's just this study of, of, of 724 participants that they followed. And year after year, they routinely asked them. And in fact, every two years, they routinely asked them um, specific questions about their life and all different aspects of their life. And here's one of the most fascinating things that came out of the study. The people who, that, who were the most satisfied in their relationships at age 50 were the healthiest at age 80. Not the richest people, not the people that exercise the most, thank God. Not the people that ate the cleanest, thank God. We're in church, it's okay to thank God. It was the people who were satisfied the most in their relationships at age 50 were the physically healthiest people at age 80. Contrary to what you might think and what you've been told, career development, nor power, nor money, nor adventure, those don't make for the good life. The primary finding of this 85-year study that followed 724 people asking them questions over a lifetime, most of which who have passed away now, found this. It found that positive relationships keep us happier and healthier and help us live longer, which takes us back to the first problem of humanity. It wasn't good for man to be alone, but for Adam, no suitable Helper was found. Now, this is a this is a phrase that is of much debate, and people get concerned about it. But here, here's what you need to know: is humanity was designed by and for relationship. It was designed by a God who was in community. He was in relationship. God was a community, and He represents order. That's who God is. He represents order, and and He's designed. We were designed by and for. Someone who was in community, and we were made, mankind was made in the image of God and in his likeness, this triune God. And humans possess not only the capacity, but the necessity. This is important not just the capacity, but the necessity for relating beyond any other species in the world. We require connection for human flourishing, for happiness by design. And it's been proven over and over and over. And this is one of the primary ways that we image God is in community, together. And so here's what God does. God fashions. He couldn't find a suitable helper for Adam. So, And this is one of my favorite words in all of the Old Testament scripture. He fashions. Of course he does. He fashions a helpmeet. He, he fashions a woman. This word, this word suitable helper is help meet. That's literally what it means. And the word meet, it, it, means, it, it, it means equal. So God fashions this helpmeet. He He fashions somebody who's an equal, who can be equally yoked with the man so that together they can carry the burdens of life and do the work that God has given them to do in the world. Because there was work even, even before the fall. And family, family becomes the original model for the community that we need. In fact, it becomes the model of the community where we, we negotiate our identity and we learn and we grow. And from a psychological perspective, um, any, any therapist that's worth their salt will tell you this. From a psychological perspective, a healthy functioning family is the optimal environment for, for most every aspect of human development. It is in a healthy functioning family. Here's the problem. Well, people don't like to talk about this very often, Familial estrangement is widespread in America, and it's at an all-time high. In a recent study by Cornell, it was discovered that more than one in four Americans, uh, American adults is estranged from their family. They're, they're separated. They're, they're disconnected from their family. And not only that, the widespread erosion of the value for the nuclear family beginning around the 1970s it's had an amazing effect in our world. It has and it still is rapidly reshaping our culture and the way we relate. Statistically, people are more willing than ever to divorce, disengage, and detach from their relationships rather than fighting for them and reconciling and mending relationships with other people. Interestingly enough... We flip the p- pages of the New Testament. So, so we're, we're way back here in the Old Testament. We flip all the way to the New Testament. Jesus, Jesus shows up and he introduces new language. He says that we now are able for the first time to relate to God as father. And all the, after all the problems that entered the world through sin, God's going, these people, they need a family. They need the, the, the primary proper environment where people and humans thrive and develop. And so all the language of our relationship with Jesus' followers in the New Testament are familial. We're adopted into God's eternal family as, as his children, we relate to him as father. Jesus' followers in the New Testament, they, they, they call themselves brothers and sisters in Christ. And the, the, this, this new family that they're in becomes actually their primary family. This is something that makes people nervous. The, the, the new family that they're in and the family of God becomes the primary family for Jesus' followers because it represents a family that's empowered by God to create healthy, flourishing humans and a healthy, flourishing familial culture. In fact, at one point, Jesus was teaching, and someone told him, this is interesting, someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside, and they want to speak to you. So he's been teaching with some people, and his mothers and brothers are outside, and you look at how Jesus responds. He said to them, he said, who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And then pointing to his disciples, his closest friends, the people that had been around him, not just the crowd, not the followers that were, he was there teaching, his closest friends. He points to his disciples, and he says, here are my mother. And here are my brothers. And the point is not to reject your family. That's not the point. Though in a sense, Jesus' family had rejected him because they had not yet embraced him as the Savior, as the Son of God, as the Messiah. And then they hadn't yet entered into this familial relationship with him by which we enter into the family of God. But these new familial relationships, they were characterized by deep friendship. Jesus and his closest followers, his disciples, they leaned on one another. They traveled together. They did life together. And Jesus would go on to teach and to model in the most extraordinary way what characterizes real friendship. When he said things like this, this is my commandment, love one another, or love each other in the same way that I've loved you. There's no greater love than to lay, one's, lay down one's life for one's friend. This is something that Jesus not only taught, but he modeled as he went to the cross and he gave his life. And we're gonna talk more about this in the coming weeks because most of the New Testament is about how we one another, one another. You've heard this phrase before. It's about how we love one another. There's one another's all across the New Testament. And it's about just this. It's what does it look like for us to do this and to experience the type of relationships that God designed for us to experience. But the first step is this, it's intentionality. Because in a culture that's flowing rapidly, and if you haven't seen this already, you, you should continue to do your own research. I mean, in a culture that's flowing rapidly against connections, social, deep, meaningful friendships and social connection, um, we, we have to be intentional. In fact, it requires diligence. This is, this is what it requires, especially in adult relationships. If you think about this, everything in childhood and adolescence and college is built around community. When you think you were growing up, you had, you had this built in. It, there was, there was a, a necessary community. You had friends because you were doing life functionally with, with other people, but, but there was space and there was time and there was, there was opportunity to create meaningful friendships. Most adult relationships, this is going to be a little bit painful for some of us. They're practical, they're functional, oftentimes they're transactional. Now you can't elbow. You can't elbow somebody next to you. I caught you doing that. You can't elbow somebody next to you. This is all of us. This is this is we. We develop relationships. relationships our most significant relationships are the people we live with. Maybe it's a roommate or people we work with, our coworkers, people we wait and watch with. It may be your kids' friends' parents. But these are all functional. And, and, and I'll just tell you, not long ago, Jen and I found ourselves in a season when we moved back here from, from Arizona in this situation. We, we had forged some deep, meaningful friendships there in, in, through a difficult season and through some crisis. And and what happened is we came back, and necessarily we prioritized our kids. We got to get our kids. They they transitioned. Two of our older ones transitioned in a difficult season of life, and we're prioritizing them and trying to get our family set up. And I'm starting a new job, and so was my wife, was starting a new job, and we're, we're, we're prioritizing all of that. And one of the things we discovered was we're isolated. Like we're around people all the time. I mean, that's my job. I work with people, but we're isolated. And. And these people that used to be our friends when we lived here seven years prior, they've all moved on, and they have their own communities, their own relationships, and who'd keep up with our friends in Arizona, but it was like we were holding on to that family, as we called it, there, because it was powerful. See, oftentimes we settle for the efficient in our lives, the practical, the functional, the people who can do things for us and we can do things for them. But are they really sufficient? We settle for the efficient. But most of the time, that's not sufficient for us. And beyond that, we convince ourselves. And come on, those of you who you're on social media, you know this. And that's why you see so many people take social media fast. And I just had another friend decide to do this recently. We we think it helps us keep up with others. But all the studies, I've given you plenty of research and studies today. I won't bore you with any more. All the studies show that social media is one of the primary contributors to social isolation in our community. And it's not going away. It's incredibly profitable for people. And, it, and it's, it's incredibly uh, 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 great for economic progress in our world. But it provides an illusion that we have meaningful friendships when we don't. Think about this, 20 years ago before social media, you knew you didn't have friends when you sat home alone with nothing to do on a Friday night, right? Now, this is is so great. Now I can sit home alone by myself and feel like, really trick myself into thinking I'm involved in other people's lives as I scroll through what they're doing on their weekend. And it creates the illusion that we're connected to other people when we're really not. See, community as an adult, it requires work and intentionality and diligence with little immediate reward or satisfaction, which is the problem for most of us because we want, when we make an effort, we want an immediate uh, uh, satisfaction from that because that's what our our phones have taught us. That's what the dopamine hits have taught us. But the reality is, is, as adults, we have to be diligent. And here's where the diligence comes in. You owe it to yourself to be honest with yourself how much have you satisfied? Have you, have you um, settled for efficient relationships in your life? I mean, how many of your relationships are just practical because they just happen to be the people you're around? Not because they're the people that, are, that, are, that you need or the people that are life-giving in your life. It's just because they're the people that are around. How, how, many, how many of your relationships are functional? It's like, well, I show up there. And I go to work, and those are just people that are in proximity. With, and maybe they're not the, they're the exact people in my life that challenge me or that care for me or that love me or, or that I can, I can be a part of their life. But, but they're functional relationships, and these are the people that I see. And there's some other people I, I, really, I really would love to be in deep relationship with, but it's just not convenient. It's not functional. And How many of your relationships are transactional? It, it, you're in the relationship because somebody is doing something for you. you. You have some tangible benefit, and they have some tangible benefit from you. And, and maybe it's, it's not meaningful. It's not significant. It's, it's physical. It is tangible. But it's non-spiritual. It's not actually helping you from an emotional and mental health standpoint. It's just transactional. And are those relationships... Are they really sufficient for you? See, for others of you, as we've been talking, a name came to mind. Maybe a face came to mind of somebody that you know you need in your life or somebody you know needs you in their life and maybe you've become isolated or maybe they've become isolated and we all know somebody like that and and you've maybe it's even somebody you've told to multiple times you've told them a dozen times hey we really need to get together sometime I mean, how many times do you do that? You see somebody, maybe you see him when you show up at church or you see him at the park or you see him at a sporting event and you see him and it's like, hey, hey, we need to get together sometime and spend some meaningful time as opposed to, you know, sitting in rows looking forward or as opposed to just witnessing an event or one of our kids' sports events or or doing something else. Like, what would it look like for us to actually get together and spend some meaningful, life-giving time together? And it sounds so remedial and it sounds so silly. But the truth is, is it's rare in our community. We're too busy. We have too many things going on around us. Our world has become unbelievably efficient. And we're really busy doing this a lot. And the reality is, is we've neglected the meaningful relationships we need. And here's the thing, some of you, a name or a face came to mind. And here's the thing I would say, you owe it to yourself and to them to figure that out this week, whether you need that relationship or whether they need you in their life. As I've already pointed out, this is at crisis levels in our world because on our own, isolated from other people, we all have the proclivity towards creating chaos in our lives. That's what the original story is about. And when God saw that the man was alone and, and he saw that he was by himself, he said, no, that's not good by themselves, got, mankind was not created that way by himself. He's not going to do well by himself. And, and here's the thing, even if you're not a Jesus follower, you're not sure about the Genesis account, you know this is true. That left to your own devices, here's what happens. We begin to make a tangled mess of our lives. And we create this, this tangled web of things that we don't even know how to get out of. And the story of the scriptures is that from the very beginning that God took chaos, and he turned it into order. And in the same way in the beginning that God said, let there be light, the reality is is you've, you've experienced this. Some of you have experienced somebody coming into your life, and they were exactly that. They were a light in your life. They, they shed light on something in your life. They began to help you to reorder your minds and your priority, your, your your priorities. And in some cases, some of you, somebody coming into your life at the right moment in your life helped you sort out the mess that you were in the midst of, something you couldn't have done on your own because you weren't designed to do it on your own. And they helped you to see it more clearly and to approach it more successfully because that's the way God designed you to relate to other people. And here's the thing. This is needed in our communities now, more than ever. In fact, this is what Dr. Murthy said. This is one of his summary statements of all of his findings in his 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 advisory to our nation. He said, "If we fail to build a more connected society and live more connected lives, we will pay for an we will pay an ever increasing price in the form of our individual and collective health and well being. And we will continue to splinter and to divide." until we can no longer stand as a community or as a country, instead of coming together to take on the great challenges before us, we will further retreat to our corners, angry, sick, and alone. Come on, isn't it true? That's what's happening in our culture. Let me ask you, who's going to stop it? Are you waiting for the next president? Are you waiting for Congress? I mean, I I just, I'm not sure they can do it. I'm not sure it's their responsibility. I mean, if you do consider yourself a Jesus follower, come on, this is our moment. I mean, I'm gonna make somebody mad with this, but I think we squandered our opportunity during the pandemic. Let's not do it again. This this is our moment In, in the midst of a society that's splintering, further separating and spiraling. We have something powerful pulling us together. We have our faith. We have a familial relationship in Christ. It's his life in us that pulls us together, that connects us in powerful ways, in ways we can't be connected any other way, but ways we were designed to connect with each other. This is our moment. This is the moment for the church to move toward one another, to pull people in. Our personal and collective health unity and communities are at stake, and we must lead the way. So we need to take initiative. We need to be diligent in this, and it starts with each one of us being diligent. It starts with moving away from chaos and moving towards order, coming out of isolation and moving towards and prioritizing community in your life. And I don't know what that looks like for you, and I'm not gonna try to prescribe it for you today. We're gonna talk about more in the coming weeks of how specifically we can do this and how you can be more strategic. In fact, next week, we're gonna give you an assessment to find out where the gaps might be in your life because there's several keystones of really healthy, life-giving relationships and you don't get them all from one person. Some of you, you're, you're burdening somebody too much in your life and you feel isolated and lonely because of it. And the truth is, is you just need others. You need more people. You need not just a spouse, you need more help meets other people to shoulder life and other people who need you to help them shoulder life. This is how God, this is how God creates order from chaos. And he's created us in his image to do the same. And it happens as we come together, as we forge deeper, more meaningful friendships and stable, healthy communities that become a light, that become a beacon of hope, that leads a world and a culture that's splintering and spiraling back home to the family of God that they were designed to be in. Let me pray for you. God, I pray for somebody who's here today that's tempted to to just shove this aside. I pray that they would recognize that while maybe they're not in need. Maybe they feel socially connected. Maybe they feel very connected in life. I pray that you would awaken them to a sense of responsibility that this is something that we're required to image you by in the world, that us being a connected community and drawing people into community drawing people into our community inviting people who don't feel like they belong in and loving them and caring for them in the same way that Jesus did as he as he interacted with so many he, as he called the so-called sinners around him friends that we would see that it's incumbent upon us as Jesus followers people who follow in the way of Jesus to prioritize building this type of relationships, the type of deep, meaningful friendships that represent the familial culture that you began your church with such that it would be a light to people. It would draw many people towards him. Jesus, you said that when when the Son of Man is lifted up, when you're lifted up, that you draw people to yourself. And when... You were lifted up. You pointed to the Father and you sent your spirit and it was familial, it was was a community. And I pray in our relationships, in our diligence that you would help us to be great lifters of you. That as we lift you, that we would be lifted, that we would experience greater health and that we would be a beacon of hope, a light that would draw people towards you. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.